Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about the difficulties of classifying something and how that can get broken. Now, we try and classify everything around us. That's what part of science is. The problem is, scientists often disagree with each other about a classification. And then you end up with unusual edge cases. And we're going to focus on one of those today. What can happen to water in the right circumstance? Now, you probably looked at some optical illusions. Something that you look at in one way, and then if you squint or look at it again, Maybe it changes what it appears. Is it a lady or is it a rabbit? Is it a cup or is it two people face to face? These kind of optical illusions are great. It shows how our mind plays tricks on us, trying to categorize something in one way or another. Another popular example of this, not relying on visual cues, but instead other ones, is how your senses like hearing can be tricked. You may remember the Laurel or Yanni type meme. Basically, an audio clip that could be interpreted as sounding as two distinct different words. In the same way as looking at that picture could be a cup or two faces. And there was, of course, also the famous blue and black or yellow and white dress. Now, these are some pretty good examples of how difficult it can be to categorize something. It seems easy enough to classify that picture as being cups or faces. But another person may look at it and see something very different. In fact, you might even look at it again later and realize, oh, actually, it's the other way around. And the problem is, we have language to try and communicate our understanding of the world. And so we rely on these classifications. Presenting ambiguity is really difficult. Now, this is an example from optical illusions or oral illusions, for that matter. But it's not something that is removed purely by applying pure hard science to a subject. Because after all, science is no better. Depending on which school of science you are studying or working in, there can be a lot of ambiguity, or let's say confusion about what something is, what it is classified as, what a value it is. Great example is the difference between how engineers treat numbers or constants like pi and gravity compared to, say, an astrophysicist or a theoretical mathematician. Now, none of these are wrong interpretations, but for an engineer, 10 is a very safe and useful way of calculating gravity. But for a physicist, that level of precision is far from sufficient for their calculations. Basically, it's an application problem. The engineer's application doesn't need the level of granular detail. In fact, it can be misleading whereas the astrophysicist absolutely does for the scale of their models. In the same way, in chemistry, astrophysics, and just regular physics, the classification about what something is and isn't starts to play some pretty uneasy tricks. Now, you'd like to think that a definition of something being a metal is relatively straightforward. You probably are picturing something in your mind that is a metal, and generally, something an easy way of classifying this is some object that is, when freshly prepared, polished, fractured, has some of a luster to its appearance, especially when it's polished or shone up. And it also has to be able to conduct heat and electricity pretty well. Metals are often malleable and ductile. Now, 
That is a general classification of a metal. But if you ask a chemist what they say is a metal, well, that's not quite sufficient because there's some things that pass those but, you know, aren't really accepted on a chemical level as being a metal. For example, arsenic and antimony would get classified, according to physics, as brittle metals. But chemistry says, no, 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 that's not quite right. We'll classify that instead as a metalloid. And in physics, the classification is very simple. Okay, close to absolute zero, can this substance conduct electricity? And if it can, well, bang. Physics say it's a metal. Problem is, you start messing with the pressure, a lot of things that you wouldn't normally consider a metal start to rapidly become one. Then you get astrophysicists who throw all of this into a huge mess and say, well, if it's anything after helium in the periodic table, then it's a metal. And the reason why they say this is, well, because that's how they classify elements that are formed inside stars. And in the application they're focused on, the high-pressure, high-temperature fusion reactors inside a star, well, you end up with lots of things they call metals. The first four metals, according to them, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and neon, which in chemistry's perspective are absolutely not metals. Now, this is fascinating, but it shows the problems of trying to classify something as simple, as tangible, as what is apparently clear-cut, as what is a metal and what is not. Even inside discipline of science, there is great ambiguity and debate about what classifies a metal and where you can draw that line. And in fact, something that you might consider not being a metal at all can, with the right setup, actually act incredibly metallic. We're going to find out how researchers managed to turn a pretty unusual substance into a metal, something that you wouldn't normally expect. Now, their findings were published in the journal Nature, involved researchers from Helmholtz Centrum Berlin and across Europe, working together with the electron storage ring particle accelerator Bessie 2. Now, leader author of this paper was Philip Mason, together with a large team of researchers from across Europe. And what they were investigating was a pretty normal everyday material that you'll be incredibly familiar with and how this normal material can have some really abnormal properties in the right environment. Now, I want you to imagine the rock, paper, scissors game where you imagine the different elements that compete against each other. Something maybe like a game like Pokemon would have the same sort of mechanism baked into it. If you have something like water, well, if you add electricity to the mix, you're going to get a super effective combo that does a lot of damage. Because of course, water conducts electricity. You know this. This is why a hairdryer fall into a, into a bath is incredibly dangerous and why you don't pour water onto your toaster because it could create a fire. Now, this is strictly true, not for all water. Because water conducts electricity, not by the pure H2O itself, but rather all of the minerals and salts that are diluted through the water. It's these that actually conduct the electricity. Because in good old, regular, pure, distilled H2O, well, there's no free electrons to actually carry and conduct all of that electricity.
In fact, distilled water has such tightly bound molecules with no free valence electrons. Well, since they're not able to move, you can't conduct electricity with no freely moving electrons, you basically have a really, really good insulator. But of course you need really, really pure water for that to happen. So we say in a practical sense, water conducts electricity, but from a purely molecular sense, it doesn't. Impure water does, but pure water does not. Or at least, that's what we thought. Now, what these researchers have shown is that if you work together and you squeeze water really hard, maybe inside a particle accelerator, you can create a situation where water becomes a metal. This is where we start getting back to that debate around what is and what isn't a metal and how strange it can become. Now, of course, you might need a pretty extreme setup for this to happen. And like with all extreme things in chemistry, sooner or later, it comes back to alkali metals. Now, if you're familiar with alkali metals like sodium, you'll know that if you drop a tiny piece of sodium into some water, well, you will get a pretty amazing explosion. This is well known and well understood because of the high reactivity. When they combine with water, you immediately start to burn. This is why we often store these things in some layer of oil so the water can't get exposed to them. But a great scientific demonstration is to take some sodium or some potassium and, and drop them into some water to create a nice little spinning if it's a small drop and a pretty big explosion if it's a larger one. Now that's cool and all, but this is a really useful way to study the relationship between these two things. Now, why we want to study this is because if you wanted to imagine something that's the opposite of super stable and responsible water, it's the alkali metals. The alkali metals release their outer electrons super easily, and basically they're almost too reactive. So if you wanted to turn water into a metal and find this really weird transition state, this theoretical possibility where you could turn water into a conducting metal. Well, what better thing to study than the super reactive alkali metals, which release their electrons really easily. Now, that's what these scientists started with. Problem is, studying these isn't easy, and studying their responsibility and reaction with water is even harder. So instead of dropping this alkali metal into a pot of water and watching it go boom, they actually went the other way around. They took an alkali metal and they put a tiny bit of water onto it. So they took sodium potassium alloy, which is liquid at room temperature, and they dropped a small amount of water on it. Now the idea here is to create a conduction band in the water with free moving electrons. But really, to make the most of this, you have to squeeze the water to such an extent that in its tightly bound structured shape, the outer electron shells get squished together enough that their electron areas overlap. Now, this would require an insane amount of pressure. Normally, the pressure found at, say, the core of Jupiter, but theoretically possible. So to really prove this, they took this little water droplet on this highly reactive alkali metal, and they took it to a particle accelerator, Bessie. Inside the sample chamber, they basically dripped out these little bits of this sodium-potassium alloy. Now, this silver droplet grows for about 10 seconds until it finally lets go and drops down from the nozzle. As the droplet grows, some water vapor flows into the surface 
surface of the sample chamber and forms a really thin skin on the surface of the droplet. It's not very big, it's only a few layers of water molecules deep, but it almost immediately causes the electrons, as well as the metals, cations, to dissolve from the alkali into the water, creating these free-flowing electrons. And they move through the water like electrons would in a conduction band. So basically what they've created is a skin, a conductive skin of golden, literally in this case golden water, on the top of this alkali metal. So you can see the point where water becomes metallic with the naked eye, as excited researcher Dr. Robert Seidel, who was involved with the experiments at Bessie 2, states, the silver potassium droplet covers itself with a golden glow, which is very impressive. Now, this thin layer of gold-colored metallic water only remains visible for a few seconds, but that's long enough for scientists to study it and use mass spectrometry on it to show that that water has indeed become a metal. Though briefly, and in a really weird setup, it can still happen. Now, to do that, you have to look at the fingerprints of a metallic phase. And that's what researchers from the Czech Academy of Sciences in Prague use their spectroscopy analysis from the Bessie 2 data to investigate. And what they're looking for are the fingerprints that are crucial for identifying a metal, the plasmon frequency and the conduction band. Now, by studying these two things using the information from the synchrotron X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy, they're able to identify that the water with, that was having this gold-colored metallic water skin has around a 2.7 EV, which is in the blue range of visible light, and the conduction band itself has a width of about 1.1 EV, with a very sharp edge on it. Now, that means that it is conductive and it is metallic from a physics point of view. Now, the interesting part about this is that it shows that you didn't need to squeeze it to some insane pressure. You just needed the right chemical composition and strange circumstance, to be sure, to occur. But it means that metallic water can be made here on Earth, not just in the core of Jupiter. And it, well, not only can it be made, not only can we turn water into a metal, but also we can make water into a metal that has a beautiful golden metallic luster, as Seidel puts it. Now this just goes to show that water is a pretty incredible thing. It can be squished, it can be transformed, it can be made to do many things. And even pure water, in its purest sense, once combined on top of an alkali, can become, in the right circumstance, metallic, if only for a moment. Now that is a case of truly going for gold in more senses than one. This is a great research from the Helmsholtz Zentrum Berlin University and large team of collaborators, including the Czech Academy of Sciences, published in the journal Nature. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we discussed what it truly means to be a metal and how, in the right circumstances, you can even make water into one. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>